Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 and here's your forecast for Friday, October 13th and Saturday, October 14th. So uh, Thursday night, they're looking at uh, trace to two inches up in the higher summits. So that means um, Friday into Saturday might be a little interesting and uh Definitely time to break out the crampons, just in case. So Friday, in the clouds, under cloudy skies, with a chance for a snow shower early. High in the upper 20s, north winds shifting northwest, 50 to 70 miles per hour, with gusts up to 85 miles per hour, decreasing to 40 to 55 miles per hour late. The wind chill is going to be 5 below to 5 above, rising to 0 to 10 above. Friday night, in the clouds under partly cloudy skies and trending towards clearing. Chance for snow showers. Upper 20s for a low. Winds northwest at 40 to 55 miles per hour early, increasing to 45 to 60 miles per hour midnight with gusts up to 75 miles per hour. And the wind chill is going to clock in around 0 to 10 above, rising to 10 to 20 above. And then Saturday, in and out of the clouds under increasingly cloudy skies with a high around 30 degrees. Winds will be blowing northwest at 45 to 60 miles per hour with wind gusts up to 75 miles per hour. And the wind chill with the wind will be 10 to 20 above. So get ready for cold weather, high winds, and uh, watch out for the old slippery conditions. Have a good one out there. studio in the great state of new hampshire welcome to the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of new hampshire here are your hosts mike and stump
All right, stop. Uh, 125 here. Did you have fun reading the weather forecast? Oh, yeah. Holy moly. Winter is Burp. here. It's going to be early out. Yeah, for sure. And uh, snow is in the forecast. And um, if you didn't um, read the full discussion about the forecast, I recommend it this weekend because um, the weather is changing quick. And um, it's time to start packing the winter stuff for sure. If you're going above tree line. Yeah, I'm going tomorrow. Matter of fact, I'm going to be in King Ravine and then maybe going up above tree line a little bit. So we'll yeah. see how it goes. It's going to be windy and cold. So I'm going to be bringing the winter gear. Yeah, high winds. High yeah. winds. Yeah, very high. So we'll see. I'm trying to help Nobby hikes out. Like we've already pivoted a little bit, but uh, we'll get into that in a minute, though. Oh, anyway. sure. All right, stop. So welcome to episode 125 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we're going to focus on some history, so we're joined by Kim Varney Chandler, who is the author of the book Covered Bridges of New Hampshire. Uh, in addition to her writing, Kim maintains the CoveredBridgesNewHampshire.com website and hosts a podcast of the same name. She's also a researcher, amateur genealogist, photographer, bird watcher, and dog lover, and she does a little bit of hiking too, so she has a, her dog's name is Pemmy, so that's pretty cool. So Kim's going to be here to do a segment with us to share some stories about covered bridges, the history and people behind these iconic landmarks in New Hampshire and the larger Northeast region. All this, plus we've got some snow on Mount Washington, which we just touched on a little bit before, uh, an avalanche tragedy in the Himalayas. We've got a Yeti sighting. Is it Yeti? Stop. You put this as a Yeti? I, put, I always call them Bigfoot. Yeah, I think they're interchangeable to a point. I think the Yeti is the traditional ancient uh word for the uh, the beast but uh in modern pop culture i think it's bigfoot <laughs> okay all right anyway so yeti bigfoot sightings we got a gear review and we've got a bunch of recent church and rescue news to catch up on so i'm mike and i'm stomp let's get started let's get started stomp. so you uh, yeah you interjected on my intro there buddy <laughs> Yeah, it turned into an interview. <laughs> yeah, it did. So, all right. So, we're going to go into the hiking buddy spot? Yeah, let's check it out. They have some good uh, advice, especially with okay. the weather coming up. This is Ben Pease from Hiking Buddies. We are a 501c3 nonprofit committed to reducing avoidable tragedies through education, impactful projects, and fostering a community of support. You can find out more at hikingbuddies.org. We wanted to say thank you to those who have supported our mission, and most importantly, say thanks to those who speak up, who ask questions, and who are willing to provide guidance and assistance on the trails when needed. You embody what it means to be a hiking buddy. And now, for all my newer hikers out there, here's this episode's Hiking Buddies Quick Tip. When planning for your next hike, check out NewEnglandTrailConditions.com to find some recent submissions by other hikers on trail conditions, terrain, and other notable items from their hike. You can also submit your own hike to let other hikers know what you experienced on trail. This is very helpful both for the hiker and the person reading. Uh, all right, Stomp, good advice from the Hiking Buddies. Matter of fact, I went to a little party with the Hiking Buddies this weekend. Really? Tell me I about did, it. yeah. Uh, we went to the Tuckerman Brewing um, 
party. I think it's Mountains and Microbrews, they call it. Yeah, so there was yeah. a bunch of hiking buddies there. So we all got together, caught up with a bunch of old friends. And it was good times. So it, was, it was kind of a rainy, miserable day. So I think that kept some people away, but it yeah. was fun. Was it well attended? Well attended, yeah. They had a... Um, a nice like tent outside. It was raining, but the tent kept everybody dry. And I saw a bunch of old friends. I saw Jake and Julie there. I saw Mel. I saw Lynn. I saw Ben. I saw Ju- um, That's great. the other Julie. So yeah, it was fun. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't make it. Uh, Joanne Hall. I saw Rhonda. There were all kinds of people that, you know, friends of the show. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, hopefully we'll see everybody soon. Couple yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. There's there's a couple events coming up, but it was a good time. Um, mm. Tuckerman Brewing. I've never been there before, so it was pretty good. And uh, Stomp. I have a confession. Uh, I think I know what it is. <laughs> I ruined Sober October. I had a beer. <laughs> well, come on. We'll give. You, I gave you a waiver, right? Last you time? did. You did. So I was like, yeah. Stomp gave me a waiver, so I'm gonna have a beer. But I'm gonna I'm gonna hold strong for the rest of October. <laughs> yeah. How's it going otherwise? I'm enjoying it. Yeah, so Brock's over, that uh, is. Yeah, it's going well. Yeah, Mrs. Stomp is doing it too. So the two of us are just like <sighs> clawing at each other. What do we do? What do we do? Uh, I had to laugh because my, my <laughs> father-in-law is like heading down to Florida. So he came in, you know, he stays at our place for a couple of nights before he's driving down to Florida. So he brought like all the extra stuff that's in the in the refrigerator. And there was a big box of like high noons and some beers in there and some <laughs> some other stuff. So we have like so much alcohol at my house right now. <clears throat> of course, that's the way it works. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, Stomp, we wanted to talk about Friday the 13th. So, tomorrow is Friday the 13th. Uh, we're coming up on the spooky season. So, Stomp wants to know what are we doing to prepare for uh, for Halloween? Yeah. So, to, when this episode is heard, it will be Friday the 13th. So, yeah, anything going on for spooky season? Mrs. Stomp is totally into it. The house is getting decorated with ghosts and pumpkins and all kinds of crazy stuff and xylo's having a blast playing with it all and i'm watching some of the latest movies like i saw um, the insidious red door and then i just watched the nun part two great stuff so scary yeah i'm not i i the only <laughs> the only thing i've been doing is eating uh candy corn this is this is mike has a bunch of candy corn so i've been eating that every time i go upstairs i'll like grab a handful of candy corn <laughs> Um, <laughs> that stuff is the best it's the best but it's also uh, the worst for your teeth like i oh, can yeah. feel it like just like the sugar just penetrating my teeth so i'll like have the candy corn and then i'll sit there for a half hour i'll be on a work call or something i'll be like i gotta go upstairs and brush my teeth so yeah yeah <laughs> but anyway but that's about it for me yeah. um so you you like spooky movies i don't really like spooky movies i'm sticking with my hallmark channel movies but you know, maybe once in a while I'll watch like some Halloween movie, but not not yeah, much. Yeah. yeah, that's all good. I mean, I I love jump scares and all that stuff. I think it's great. Yeah, so. we get a little bit of decoration, but not much. I, I think Mrs. Stomp probably has us beat. Oh, she's totally into it this year. She's going nuts, buying all kinds of crazy things. We actually have two of those big inflatable electric inflatable balloons like one of them is uh the character from hocus pocus bet midler's character and then um it's a cat a scary cat so <laughs> there was actually inflatable things in the back deck it's too funny hey why not why not why not so i did yeah. uh i did do a little halloween thing this weekend i was walking around freiburg maine 
uh, we were getting ready to go to the Freiburg Fair, but I think that the day before we just went for like a family walk. We 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 go on the the, the mountain division walking trail and then we walk into downtown Freiburg by Freiburg Academy in that area there but there was somebody that had like a must have been like a 16 foot skeleton I posted it on the Instagram story and yeah it's like one of those yard ornaments or yard things it must Mm -hmm. have been like I don't even know like maybe 15 feet tall and I thought that was pretty cool so I got a picture of that (laughs) that's wicked cool yes yeah. Um, all right, Stomp. So we've got snow on Mount Washington. We just talked about that. So this yep. is the first measurable snow came through on, this is four days ago. So they got a little over a quarter inch of snow mm. uh, below freezing temperatures, high winds and fog. Uh, so they experienced rime ice up there as well. Yep. And a couple of friends of mine went up there on Monday as well and experienced a little bit of icy conditions. So yeah, I don't know if it's time to break out the micro spikes yet, but it's getting close. Well, check it out. I mean, for those of you that protest against the uh, forecast at the beginning of the show and skip over it, <laughs> the forecast said it's going to be traced to two inches. So we are in it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, Good stuff. It should be an interesting day tomorrow morning when I get out there. <laughs> yes. So, um, all right. So, Ooh. next up, Stomp, we got a story. This is a sad one. So, um, this is in the world of mountaineering. So, two American climbers, uh, two women, Gina Marie and uh, Anna Guta, um, they were in a race to be the first American women to scale all 14 8,000 footers, and they were both on their final push on Shishapagma, which is in China as part of the Himalayas, and they were hit for, they were hit by an avalanche. So this is a wild story. So two women, they're both racing to be the first person to complete these, you know, all the four, the 8,000 meter peaks. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, And the avalanche hit Anna was found dead along with her guide, Mingmar Sherpa, while Gina is missing together with her guide. And I believe, Stomp, that after this, is is it, have they located Gina or do they think both of them have passed? I'm not aware. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but this is like that. Remember when we talked about that story um, on K2 about the, you know, the guy that had died and they were all sort of sitting on this really perilous um, section that's prone to avalanches. Like it sounds to me like a bunch of people just got hit at the mm-hmm. wrong time. They were under the wrong section and it took took a bunch of them out. Right, right. I was looking up to see if um, the person, the other female climber that was doing K2 that got wrapped up in that controversy with the Sherpa yeah. um, was part of this, but uh, she was not. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that she... Um yeah, she she's probably yeah. taking a break from high mountaineering uh, activities at this point. But right. yeah, it's interesting. The death toll overall has risen to four. So um, just looking at this here, yeah, they're still missing as of a day ago. So, right. um, but it, obviously not good. Like no one's going to survive that area. Mm-hmm. So yeah, unlikely. It's a deadly game up there, Stomp. I don't think. Would you ever do like that high mountain? Would you ever go to like climb these 
8,000 meter peaks or hire a guide if you like if you won the lottery and had a bajillion dollars would, would that be something you'd spend your money on I think I would probably do something like Kilimanjaro or something more moderate or modest as opposed to these crazy 8Ks up in the uh, the glacial regions. I, I just know I'm just risk averse at this stage of my life. Yeah, yeah. I would probably like maybe I'd mess around in the Alps or something, but not mm. I don't know so much about the Himalayas. So we'll see. Right, right. Great. All right. So uh, now moving on, we've got Fishing Game has if issued two timely warnings here, Stomp. So mm. occasionally, like in between search and rescue um, press releases and um, ATV and snowmobile press releases, they do occasionally. The Fishing Game Fishing Game will uh, put out sort of public service announcements to be aware. So this one here is be prepared, aware, and responsible while exploring this fall and winter. And what they call out is that temperatures are cooling off, the foliage is going to be advancing, and they want to remind visitors to practice safety and responsibility. Even short hikes require awareness, preparation, and self-reliance. Anytime you're going into the woods, um... You know, you need to be prepared. Um, don't always rely on GPS mapping or app technology to guide you mm-hmm. in remote mountains. Um, those who Super practice important. self-reliance carry maps, a compass, and the knowledge to use both tools. Mm-hmm. Be sure to bring a flashlight with extra batteries. I always say bring an extra flashlight So mm-hmm. or a headlamp, sorry, uh, yeah. so you have two. And be aware of your physical limitations, rapidly changing conditions, and unreliable cell service in many of the locations is common. So temperature fluctuations between the trailhead and summit can be significant. And then you've got reduced hours of daylight. And um, you know, you've got to make sure that you're prepared with light, layers of clothes, warm and dry, uh, extra clothes, accurate maps and directions. Correct. And they finished the article with the uh, 10 essentials listed. Uh, Mike just mentioned a few. Um, there's also the matches, fire starters, first aid repair kits, whistle, rain, wind jacket and pants, and a pocket knife. Yeah. The other Good thing stuff. here that they talk about stomp, and this is the hardest one, all hikers, regardless of experience, must know when to turn back. And right. the, the, the difficulty in that one is that unless you've been doing this for a long time, like you don't know where that line is. Mm-hmm. That's right. That comes with experience. Yeah. So, and some people, I mean, maybe it doesn't always come with experience. Some people just have a better sense of like, hey, I'm getting in deep and I'm going to turn around. But it does, a lot of times it does mean that you've got to get some experience and the, sometimes you take some risk to get that experience. Sure. Uh, matter of fact, I'll talk about like my hike on Chikora on Friday to, to highlight that a little bit when we get to that section. And the second, the second thing they post here is about wearing blaze orange when heading a field because we are in hunting season now. Um, you know, it, it's important on trail, but definitely off trail. Wear something blaze orange so that you're not mistaken for uh, an animal that may be hunted. True. Wear yeah. orange stomp. Yep, that's it. All right. Uh, the next thing we have here, there's a Yeti sighting in Colorado. So, uh, so I think, here's what I think the difference between Yeti and Bigfoot is, is Yeti exist in like the Himalayas 
mm-hmm. and then Bigfoot exists in the the North American area. So it's like a it's like um, I don't know. It's like different names for the same thing, but because geographically, you just have to call it a Bigfoot. So I'm calling it Bigfoot. Sure, sure. I'll give you that. We okay. need a Bigfoot expert on to talk. I, I know it's didn't controversial, but it's very interesting. Yeah, didn't we have a guy? What were we gonna? There was a guy. We do. Was, we do. We have a guy. I just haven't reached out to the guy. All right. <laughs> Can we like before? You know, usually we reach out to people and we're just like we know we just assume that they're normal. But I can't assume that a Bigfoot expert's normal. So we'll, we may want to have a conversation with him or like. Just slow roll it and have like a longer email exchange and try to suss out whether he might be a little nutty. Yeah, we'll do. We'll vet I don't him. want like a stalker or something. But anyway, so Bigfoot was reported. So I don't know. This is on Twitter. So it's probably just like, it's probably a goof. But, and again, like this is just like the UFO sightings or ghost sightings. Like the... There's never like a high definition 4K version of this. Nope. It's always from like 20 miles shaky. away or like it's through like a, a bag of water that they're filming. Like this one is, <laughs> I don't know. He's, it, it's it, close it, to that. It's on a mountain, but it looks like, is it a drone footage or is this like a helicopter? No, there are people in a train passing by. It's in Colorado. Um, oh, it's a train. Okay. Yes. So this is definitely a goof then, because this would be something. So listen, there needs to be a listener that has to do this to the Cog Railroad. Is get yourself a Bigfoot outfit <laughs> for Halloween, get, for Halloween or whenever, and get like a pretty good distance away. You know, you've got to get like on. You know, you got to be at least a couple hundred feet away, and then stop walking around and wait for it to happen. So the, what this video is is somebody's on a train, they're going up a mountain, and then. It's like scrub, and the this Bigfoot character is walking around, and it's like squatting down. Squatting. <laughs> yeah, it's squatting down on the ground. And it needs a haircut. It, yeah, and then it gets up again. It's definitely a goof. Probably. Yeah, yeah it looks fake. Yes, and but just anyway, the, we'll, the, the, we'll the include quality. this in the show notes so you can take a look at it, because he's just walking like a human. Yeah, it looks so cheesy. But it went viral, of course, as yeah. one would expect. But it's funny. I mean, like in California, I think uh, they started having sightings in the 50s, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of sightings. I guarantee most of them are fake. But there are some out there that really believe in the uh, etymology of these creatures and the the Tibetan yep. connection and everything else. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about this before. Like, I, I you know, there's a theory. Uh, I forget what it's called. It's like um, the idea is that um, there was a couple of things that, were, like, when hunter gather gatherer societies existed, like they had some problems where they, like, the kids, like, you know, kids are generally pains in the neck, and they're gonna go running off. So you got to figure out a way to keep the kids in the tent or wherever it is that you're going. Cause if not, they're going to get eaten by like a wildebeest or like a saber tooth tiger or whatever. So right. what they would come up with was like these stories of, you know, like they, it wasn't even stories to them. They would see like a lightning strike. And to them, they're Baba like, Duke. you know, God's coming down to kill us or whatever. So they would come up with these stories to like, basically just make people fearful. So they wouldn't go running off and get killed. 
So the elders would come up with these stories and they would sometimes exaggerate the stories probably to just make sure that people were not doing that. So the people that survived over millennia were the ones that were the best at sort of like embracing and listening to these stories over generation over generation. If you didn't listen to these stories, you get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. So our ancestor stomp were the ones that listened to the story and were like, I'm going to stay close to my parents because if not, I'm going to get struck by God or some monster is going to get me. So I feel like over time, our genes have been encoded with this idea that we're going to accept the idea that there's monsters because mm. that's how we survived and made it into the gene pool. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we all so grew up why. with comments sent our way that impacted us. Sure. Yes. Yeah. For so, our safety. Anyway, that's my theory about like genetically why we, we, we like Bigfoot and all those things. So, yeah. Um, all right. So moving on, full conditions and rescue me update. What's going on here? We, we have a, um, an event coming up on November 11th, right? Correct. That is the reckless full conditions release. So, they are brewing Ty Gagney's Full Conditions Beer, which is a benefit for the New Hampshire Outdoor Council. And uh, as far as I know now, it is sold out, but stay tuned. There may be some additional tickets that they're trying to work up, and uh, we'll keep you posted on that. But if you don't make the show, which begins at 2 o'clock for music for an hour, and then the show will be 3 to 5, after 5 o'clock, the doors will open to the public, so you can come on in and uh, have a beer with us and hang out and chat and meet Ty and, and everybody else. So, uh, again, it's a, a great benefit, and i uh, really looking forward to that. But that morning, the uh, Rescue Me 5K is happening, and our team is up to 17 <laughs> members now, uh, which is so cool. Thank you, everybody, for signing up and supporting the Lakes Region Search and Rescue because the... Um, the proceeds for this race go to that team to support their efforts with volunteer search and rescue. So I guess the bib pickup is 8.30. The race starts at 10. Uh, for those of you on the team, just keep a lookout for a great Tacoma with a pop-up tent with the Slasher logo on it, and we'll all be gathering there and uh, stretching each other's hammies out and you know quads and stuff like runners do. Right, yeah, I got my daughter. <laughs> I got... Um the boyfriends come in. I got my daughter's. I got a whole WPI crew coming up, so it should be fun. Oh, it's going to be a great time. Yeah. So Looking that's what's going on. It. Yeah, super cool. Very good. Hey, when are we going to get a beer named after ourselves? <laughs> We're well, talk the, catch is it, the catch is it has to be like uh, for a proceed or a yeah, charity yeah, yeah. or do. something. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I could do that. So we we could we could give them a release. They can they can use it. <laughs> anyway, so we're looking forward to it. I'm a little nervous. Live shows, I always freak out, but we're gonna script it out. We'll be fine. Well, well hold on a minute. What kind of beer would you want to to represent Slasher? Like an IPA or a stout, yeah, or what IPA. are we thinking? Yeah, like IPA. A, it would be the most basic IPA that you could imagine. <clears throat> hmm, a hazy. Can we go hazy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hazy. All right, all right. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> it would be nothing interesting, just like the most plain IPA you can get. That would be that would fit us perfect. <laughs> uh, that's funny. 
All right, so Snob, now you have here, you got two stories of interest oh. on Wednesday's Laconia Daily Sun, but you didn't link them. I didn't, because I have the paper right here, crinkly. What is that, th- what is that thing you're holding in your hand? I saw this. This I saw this today at work. It was from Wednesday. It's the Laconia Daily Sun, and That's these two a, so headlines. Ho- Stomp is holding a paper newspaper. A newspaper. I haven't seen one of those in a long time. Can you believe this? But look at the two stories. I, I immediately thought of you when I saw these. I thought of you first, and then the podcast. Can you read those headlines? I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the first one is high-paid remote workers flocked to New Hampshire resort towns. So it's a, it's a big it's a big bitch fest about all the people that are moving up north to the remotes. <laughs> well, get ready, people! I'm coming up in a couple of years, so you can keep complaining. Ah, so that's the first one. And then the second one uh, was a happy story. It's about uh, Guilford firefighters rescue a dog from an old well. Um, I, apparently a dog fell into a well and uh, the, the pup was rescued, thankfully, on uh, October 8th. It was a 70-pound dog. So that's a good story. It was, I love it how it's back-to-back, though. It's like, high-paid remote workers flocked to New Hampshire resort towns and then a rescue of a pup. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, I know that picture looks like it must be the well, but it looks like a um, it looks like that like the duck cleaning services like come in and clean your air conditioning ducts. So I would not want to ever be stuck in a well. Oh um, uh, no! So, so stop. We got another story coming up, but I forgot I didn't put this in the script. But I caught this the other day and I posted it on my Facebook or, or the Facebook page. Black Mountain in Jackson is not opening for the season. Okay, why? Which is a shame, yeah. So they're a ski res- ski resort. Um, they just said that the cost of energy and uh, short wow. staff, they decided that they're not going to open for the season, So, which is unfortunate because it's a great that little is. mountain. That's where my kids learn to ski, and uh, wow. it's a great sort of a hidden gem, but apparently it's just too hidden. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess you could have seen that coming. Yeah. Kind of a bummer. I feel like a lot of the ski resorts are struggling. Like the small ones are struggling. Like people want to go to these big, big fancy ones with the fast um, chairlifts and things like that. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. tough to beat that. But you're going to pay for it. Yeah, you sure are. So, uh, okay. So next up here, we got a story. This is hiking related. There was a woman killed in Vermont. 77-year-old... Um, her name was Honoré Fleming. So her body was discovered on October 5th on the Delaware and Hudson Rail Trail around 4.30 p.m. So there was a young man in his 20s, a white man, 5'10", with short red hair, last seen wearing a dark gray T-shirt and carrying a black backpack that was spotted in the area. So police on the lookout for this character and... Um, you know, the police are continuing to look at like potential evidence as the investigation of the killing continues. So they don't have a lot of details yet. They're doing an autopsy and uh, they did, oh, they did an autopsy and they determined that the the lady Fleming had died from a gunshot wound to the head and mm-hmm. her death has been ruled a homicide. So this is a pretty wild uh, story. There was a witness that said they heard gunshots and saw a possible suspect walking northbound on the trail. Uh, but this is one of those like rail trails that mm-hmm. connects, I guess, Vermont and New York, and okay. wow. really scary. So uh, it's Castleton, so it's like Burlington, that area. Okay, uh, yeah, I had not heard. Yeah, and the composite photo of the the suspect looks like you know he he definitely looks guilty in that photo. Mm-hmm. So oh, that's, that's anyway, 
we'll keep an eye on that one. But um, yeah, pay attention, people, when you're out there, especially with the real trails. They're too accessible. I feel like there's too many shady characters around those real trails sometimes. No, no question. Are you ready for Slasher's Ear Review? All right, Stomp, you got some gear reviews here. What is this all about? Yes, yeah, Slasher's Gear Talk, because everyone does it better than we do, but no one does it like we do. I found these two things. This is uh, this popped up. Wait, and- wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> oh, Nobody the- does it like we do? Yeah, well, a lot of podcasts do gear reviews, and they do it so great. So when we first started doing the gear talk... It was a spoof. Like we were trying to find, you know, umbrella hats and stupid stuff, but now it's yeah. morphing into an actual segment yeah. of cool gear. But the original intent in the uh, the wording is the same. So the the phrase was originally slasher's gear review, because everyone does it better than we do, but no one does it like we do. <laughs> 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 All right, I like it. I just, I was like, I, where did that come from? Yeah, oh, and good. it has the, uh, you know, the intro music has the cheesy circus music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. But right, yeah, man. it's morphing. I, I keep on finding these really thing, cool things. So I found this. Um, this first one is an all-terrain track chair, and this is basically a power chair for individuals that need, a, you know, a wheelchair or, or, or wheelchair bound. And this thing is unbelievable. It's an all-terrain power wheelchair that uh, is customizable to your needs. It has basically like tank treads, and it's motorized, and it can handle mud, sand, snow, water, you name it. You have to check this thing out. It's really amazing. Um, wow. They have, know, um, yeah, they have different sizes. Like, oh, I yeah. can't wait to get old and just drive around in one of these badasses. It's amazing. So, people that are looking, uh, you know, the adaptive community, this is a really neat thing. I bet it. it's not cheap, but <clears throat> it's out there. And um, yeah. the Power cheer options are expanding and becoming more, uh, I don't know uh, what the word would be, but they're expanding into terrain that you couldn't before. Yeah, yeah. and on the low end, you've got units for like about 14000 and then on the high end, the most expensive one looks like, the, the most expensive one looks like it, it's a standing model at $27,000. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a couple that are like in the twenty thousand range that look like they are really beastly. Like there's one that has like five tracks or five wheels with the track, and that's like sixteen thousand. So yeah, yeah, these are really interesting. Oh yeah, super cool. Yep, great. I don't know how great they would be in New Hampshire. Because just because of the roots and the rocks and things like that, like I don't know if they could totally navigate all the trails, but out west, I mean, mm-hmm. those trails for the most part are perfect for this. Oh, I would think so. Yeah. Just um, flatter, more earth than rock. Okay. Less well, boulder. It's not, it's not really a gear review stomp because you didn't try the actual gear, but you're hi- it's a gear highlight. True, true. It's a okay. gear highlight. No, back to the back to the drawing board. <laughs> well, this next one I've tried. <laughs> okay, all right, there you go. Uh, fair enough. So the next one is Liquid Death, 
Have you heard of this? I haven't, no. All right, you might be really fascinated with this. Liquid death is a water... Just bear with me here on this one. It's hard to swallow at first. It's water in an aluminum can, but the trick with this is it's artesian well water, and it comes in just either non-carbonated or carbonated. And the company's mission is to actually reduce plastic pollution, uh, toxicity, and um, to reduce the whole... Uh, recycling of plastic, which apparently at this point is becoming untenable. So check it out. It's absolutely delicious. Um, I can attest to the artesian water here because we live on an artesian and the water is just phenomenal. So there it is. Liquid death, it's water, and they're murdering your thirst. That's the catchphrase for the uh, water. And it's in a, the whole thing about the plastic is it's in an aluminum can. It's in a can, which is permanently recyclable. Okay. Yeah. So it looks it's like one of those cool, it's got cool like a cool logo on the can. Absolutely. Take check it out at uh say Walmart and a few other places and uh, give it a shot. The carbonated version is just really really good. So Yeah, it's got some funny marketing on the website too. It's got like a really like cheap version of the um the Ice King or whatever his name is from Game of Thrones, like <laughs> right. using his saber to like melt people's faces off. So that's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's great. So that's my gear. Uh, I don't know. Plug. <laughs> okay, stop. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> All right. Next up, free stickers. Free stickers. And uh, let's see, we can get them at Ski Fanatics in Campton off of Exit 28 and Spinner's Pizza Parlor off of Dascom Road uh, in Massachusetts in Andover. Say hi to Dolls and Pops. You can always advertise with Slasher. Just send us an email at slasherpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we have a donation this week, a coffee donation from Buy Me a Coffee. And this is from Mark, that friggin' hiker. And he says, thanks for the shout out. I think you mentioned him last week, Mike. That friggin' hiker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. Much appreciated. Uh, beer right. talk, nothing this week. We have the uh, Sober October going on. And uh, recent hikes. Let's get into your hike, Mike. Yeah, so I had, a, uh, I had a failure on Friday afternoon, Friday night. So I left. I think I bailed out of work at like 4 o'clock on Friday. So I headed up to Shakora. And, um, on late on Friday and I was like, I'll, I'll see if I can get up there before, um, sunset and then I'll just hike down in the dark. So I went up Piper trail and then Nickerson ledge and then Carter ledge. But unfortunately, like everything was dry. I was driving up. I got into Tamworth and it was like a little bit of a sprinkle, um, stopped at subway, grabbed a sandwich for the, for the summit and then headed up. I had like, I feel like I had like about an hour and a half to get to the summit. So I was like, I'll be okay. And I said, even if I get to Three Sisters and I don't get up to the actual Chikora summit, and I just come down, that's cool either way. Uh, so I started hustling and it started like drizzling. But Chikora's, like it's it's a pretty thick canopy. So yeah. it was kind of raining, but I wasn't getting wet because it was just hitting the trees. So then when I got to the trail junction of um, 
Nickerson Ledge, I think is what it's called, or Nickerson Trail or something. I headed up there and then started picking up more. And the visibility started, like, it started getting foggy. And then I finally got to Carter Ledge. I kept going, and, like, the rain started, like, sort of making its way through the canopy. So I was getting a little bit wet. Mm-hmm. Um, then I got, like, just below treeline when you start to get to the ledges, it started pouring. And I realized, I was like, all right, well, I don't have my uh, backpack cover with me. So I went into my backpack because I was like, I got to put everything into my trash bag so it doesn't get wet. And I realized like I had emptied my backpack when I went to Yosemite. So I, I had pulled my trash bag out of my day pack. So I didn't have a trash bag. So I was like, oh man, everything's going to get soaked. So then I realized I had my um, emergency bivy with me. So I ended up having to put everything, I had to pull my bivy out and then like put everything in my bivy and then like twist that up and then stick it back in my backpack. And I'm getting wet while I'm doing this. I'm like, this stinks. And I yeah. started thinking, I was like, well, the ledges are going to be super wet. So sure enough, like I get above tree line and I'm going for like maybe five minutes or so. And I went across like the first two or three ledges and I was like, oh, this is like walking on ice. And then it was like this steady cold rain and I was in a t-shirt and then I was like, well, let me switch to my raincoat. But then I was thinking, I was like, well, if I keep going, the temperature's dropping, it's cold rain. I was like, I still got another mile to go. So that at that point, I was like, well, if even I get up top, I'm still going to have to keep moving to stay warm or I'm going to freeze to death. And then if I keep moving fast, I'm going to slip. And I'm by myself. There was like no other cars in the parking lot when I got there. So... I just was like, you know what, I'm I'm risking enough already by being up on these ledges. Let me just, so I just turned around at like the second ledge. Matter of fact, I, that's when I texted you and I was like, I got to bail out because. Right. Good so call. that's sort of what I was talking about when I say like, you have to know that little voice in your head where you have to know when to turn back. And that, that voice was like screaming when I was up there. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, no, this is all bad. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you're itchy to get something accomplished, but you just can't put yourself at that risk. Yeah, yeah, because I hadn't gone hiking in, <clears throat> I don't know how long, like a couple of weeks because I was in Yosemite, so I, had, I haven't gone. So I was like, I want to get, get something in, and I was like, well, maybe I'll get some views on Chikora, but it was just cloudy, and it, like, it was the one section Friday night where it was like just there was just rain stuck on Chikora. Everywhere mm. else was kind of okay. I would have been better off going to another mountain, but... I just was like, it's right on the ride. So that's why I stopped there. I was like, well, see how it is. Yeah. Well, good call. Especially on that trail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, those, the ledge there when it's wet is really slick. Oh, no doubt. Yep. Hmm. Speaking so of ledge, we've been seeing story. a lot of videos about the whole trail and I've got the itch to do that for sure on Cardigan. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, my nephew's upstairs, like they're having a little dinner party up, up, up there um, to say goodbye to my my father in law, and yeah. he was just asking me on the when we had a little break. He was asking me. He was saying he's going to go to Monadnock, but he didn't want to go. And I was like, "Oh, go to go to Cardigan." Yeah, good call. Yep, it's going to be beautiful. I mean, the foliage yeah. is still cranking. Yep. So, yep. Uh, but other than that, I'm hiking tomorrow. I'm going out into the King Ravine with with Nobby hikes, and we'll see how that goes. Yeah, be safe with that. Wind's going to be rowdy. At least yeah, you have a not, ton of a uh, bailouts. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to be great, but we'll we'll figure it out. Yeah. 
All right, Stomp. Um, do you have a, a sweat problem? Oh, I sure do. But thankfully, there's a solution. Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Vaucluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack size 15 liters to 65 liters and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over 3 ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit vaucluesgear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, to enjoy a $5 discount. Plus, let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. Wow. Good stuff. And uh, hey, we have a couple notable hikes of the week. If you want to be considered for a notable hike of the week by Slasher, just tag us on your Instagram post, and we will put you on the list and give you a shout out so we have um ec banks hikes who was our guest just recently for a listener spotlight he was tackling some more trails out of the guidebook trek in the pine mountain complex and he says that he's at 67.8 percent that's interesting because we have a rescue coming up in the uh the last segment on that uh pine mountain in that complex i had no idea it existed so we'll check it out Snow Angel Cabot via Kilkenny Ridge from the Unknown Pond for number 43. I love Unknown Pond and uh, the bulge in the horn and all that there. That's a great approach to Cabot if you're uh, looking for a new angle to approach that summit. LB Boyd, 4th Connecticut Lake Preserve Trail. And I, I believe this is the northern tip of the state, part of the Coas Trail. Am I right about that, Mike? Yes. Yeah. Beautiful area up there, very remote, but I think her intention was to, uh, av- or their intention was to avoid the foliage rush, which was insane, and it's probably going to be bad this weekend, too. Uh, all right, two more. So, Liz Fay and Dave Schitz, Millen Trail and Mount Dartmouth. Beautiful pictures. Um, I was unfamiliar with Mount Dartmouth, but um, I think I'm going to add that to my personal list. Looks great. Hiking Feeds My Soul and Miles the Dog checked off the Kinsmans for the 48. And then actually, I saw another one here. Rhonda Willette, 68, uh, hiked up Table Mountain, another beauty. And that's what we have. Very good, Stomp. Yeah, very good. Very good. All right, so we are going to get into our segment of the week. So we're joined by um, our friend Kim Varney Chandler. We're going to talk about covered bridges. So she was nice enough to sit down with us. So let's go into that segment here, Stomp. Let's go. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. All right, so um, welcome, Kim. Thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about covered bridges and, and probably some other topics. So, welcome, welcome. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Great. So, um, Stomp, why don't you kick it off and sort of give the listeners a little bit of background about how we connected with Kim? I think this is a pure Instagram connection. I do not recall if it was us following you, Kim, or vice versa, but uh, we're glad to have made the connection. It's just another uh, shout out to the, this little community that we're building, all things New Hampshire and hiking and search and rescue and local interests. So uh, I'm not sure how it happened, but we're glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Great. So, Kim, why don't you start off by giving a little bit of background about yourself, um, and then we can we can get into a little bit more detail around uh, the book and the podcast and Covered Bridges. Sure. So, I um, I have been a high school counselor, believe it or not, for twenty eight years, and have always been um, fascinated by history. I'm that person that when you go places, I've done the research and I know things, and I annoy my friends and family with. <laughs> You know, data they didn't want, and um, and I, I, my husband Marshall and I moved to Hancock in 2012, and there's a covered bridge here, and I we travel over it to get, and if you know where Hancock is, which a lot of people don't, um, to get anywhere you, you, to buy anything, you have to leave town. So if you're going eastward from here, you pass over that that covered bridge, and um, so and I'm kind of a list person. I like to make lists. I like to finish lists. So Perfect. we started feeding birds. I documented the birds. Um, I started hiking. Uh, we could talk about that later. <laughs> haven't finished that list yet. Um, okay. And decided I was going to photograph all of the covered bridges in the state. So that's that's kind of how my interest in covered bridges started. And because I'm curious, I started researching the bridges and along that that journey um someone offhandedly said well why don't you write a book and i said i I have no business writing a book and he (laughs) said well anybody can write a book so with that high bar i thought well (laughs) i suppose i could try so it's it this journey for me happened by by accident um and it's been another full-time job for me which i really enjoy well now did you have any other um like sort of niche history interest before you got into covered bridges? I, uh, yes, I've um, traced my husband's and my family tree, which if you've ever gotten into that, it's it's a giant rabbit hole. And um, I've done that for forever. I've researched some of my friends' family trees. Um, and I've always been fascinated with the history of where we've lived. So I've always researched property deeds and, and tried to know more about the different communities that we've been a part of. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, it almost doesn't matter what the the hook is, but like, I find like trail names and, and mountain names. Like, I'm I'm a place name mm-hmm. nut now, and I'm sure that like with covered bridges, you probably uncover a lot of interesting characters that are involved in uh, the building of these. And we'll get into that for sure. But yeah. um, history is interesting. Um, I guess what what are some of the biggest surprises you've learned about covered bridges since you've gotten into this? Uh, well, one of the things that I've, I've learned is that a covered bridge doesn't have to have a roof on it, mm-hmm. which is, was news to me. Um, and I've also been very surprised by the community connections and the community commitment to keeping and in some instances re- rebuilding their covered bridges after they've been lost. And, um, and a lot of the communities that have covered bridges that own them are very small communities, and some of them have multiple bridges. And hmm. 
the the money and the effort that they spend to raise the money um, is a, is a huge testament to what covered bridges mean to New Hampshire. Yeah, and as far as the um, the overall, so you're you're obviously like one of the the keepers of knowledge with with the book, and you have a podcast as well that that covers the topic. Uh, but is there like a, a single organization that's responsible for maintaining? the historical records for covered bridges? Yes, there is. So the National Society for the Preservation of Covered Bridges is uh, a national group. They uh, coincidentally are housed in Hillsborough because the president, Bill Caswell, lives there. And uh, most of their meetings are local to me. And if not, they're you know within the, the greater New England area. Um, and they were founded in, in 1950. And they advocate uh, for the the preservation of of bridges, and they're a total volunteer group. Um, a lot of the board members, it's an, a, another full time job for 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 them. They um, they hold monthly meetings. They produce a quarterly journal, and they produce um, the World Guide to Covered Bridges, which lists all of the covered bridges in mm. the world. And this must they must serve as a I'm assuming they have some historical archives as well oh yes they do thank you for mentioning that they yes they have the largest uh, re- repository of uh, covered bridge documents and and photos most of which they graci- graciously shared with me for this for this book and um, and my and my partnership with them was really fortunate for me because without um, Bill's help and and Scott Wagner and um, and others in that in the group, you know, they they helped me with my chapters. They taught me a lot about bridge language that was not my first language. Um, so I am I am very grateful to all of them for their help. Hmm. Uh, well, I want to go back in time in a minute, but before we get get to um, some some additional history, can you talk a little bit about your hiking background? <laughs> I mean, we're primarily hiking and search and rescue. Uh, so yes, um, yes. Why don't you give us a little bit of rundown? Did you have you gotten into hiking recently, or have you always been an outdoors person? Well, so my my husband Marshall um, finished his first round of forty of the the forty eight um, on Bond Cliff in. 2013, and that was my first 4,000 footer. Oh, good for um, you. Oh, so he dragged you all the way out to Bond Cliff. That's well, a long yes, day. He did. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, yes, he did. And there was a, uh, a group of us, and my, my cousin Tracy, you interviewed her not too long ago um, with Captain Chris. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Oh, cool. That's a connection. All yeah. right. Yeah, so, so they're hiking royalty. So that's yes, cool. <laughs> yes. Chris wasn't on this on this trip, but poor poor Tracy. She's hiked with me a couple of times, and I am slow. Um, but I have so I've I've done a few. And in um, twenty twenty, we got hot on and again, and I got up to ten, and then I started this project. So unless there's a covered bridge on a summit somewhere, I'm not. <laughs> We're going to have to start building some. some. So do you remember back when you got out to Bond? So I can only imagine like just taking somebody out to Bond Cliff that hasn't hiked a lot. Like it's got to go in two directions. You're either going to go out there and be like, this is the most magical place ever. Or you're going to be like, "Ah, this is the worst day of my life. 18 miles. I alternated between both of those feelings. So um, yeah, we, we, when we got there, there was a group of us and another friend of ours, Mitch, came, and Mitch had not hiked much either, and we were in the parking lot, and he said, I can't wait for that cheeseburger we're having when we're done. <laughs> so that was, that kind of kept me going, but it was, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. 
Huh. Well, hopefully so. this this appearing on the show will get you the bug and you'll you'll want to knock oh. off some more of those 4000 yeah. footers. I have 38 more to go. Please <laughs> oh, don't geez. please don't play shame. the shame thing on me. Shame. <laughs> shame. <laughs> 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 no, we won't. We won't. We'll just encourage you. But um, all right, Kim, so let's go back in time to the early 1800s. Um, can you give us a little bit of a, a view of sort of the time period? Talk a little bit about the settlers that organized in those communities and just the general role of transportation in northern New England and New Hampshire and how these bridges sort of play into that. Sure. So, you know, the the Seacoast region was obviously settled first in, in that, you know, they're their commerce was built around sawmills and ship shipyards and merchants, and in the central and western part of the state where I am, you know, a lot of a lot of people moved to have their own farms, and a lot of those communities were built um, around a sawmill or a grist mill. Um, so they were usually located around a, a water source of some of some kind, and. You know, obviously, they were using horse and buggy and, and wagons, and traveling was, was really hard. The roads were not well cared for, um, and a lot of people didn't really leave their greater community very often. But by the, eight, the late 1800s, when the railroad really took over and changed the way people travel, um, obviously, the, the North Country started logging, and that that changed a lot of and really grew a lot of those those northern New Hampshire communities, um, and I, and you know most of the most people would initially cross rivers and streams by fording or they would wait until it was frozen and that was usually quite a gamble. Yeah. Um, and there were some earlier bridges that I've seen through the research. You know they were just crudely built; um, they weren't particularly safe. And a lot of the larger river crossings usually use ferries. So, um, and ferries were probably safer than trying to go across the ice. But if you're trying to move cattle from, you know, one side of the state to the other or one side of the river to the other, you know, that's not really handy to put yeah. a lot of, put a lot of cows on a ferry. Um, so, you know, I, and when the, when the railroad came that, that, that really shaped um, a lot and there were hundreds of of railroad covered bridges um, along the railroads here, and um, but the first, well, the first covered bridge, um, the first covered bridge that we know to have been built in the U.S. was built uh, by a gentleman from Massachusetts named Timothy Palmer, and that bridge was open to traffic in in Philly actually in 1805 and that's the first documented covered bridge mm-hmm. and it was such a large bridge um and at the time it was a $300,000 project also oh, to be like the equivalent of you know in the tens of millions yeah, now right yes and because it cost so much they decided that they would they would cover it to protect it um what there was a, it was a two to Two different spans. One was 150 feet long, and the other was 195 feet long, and and that was really the first one that we that we know was was built. That's not to say there may not have been another covered bridge built somewhere else, but that's certainly the the one that's you know referenced. And over time, you know, different community other communities would would start to build smaller covered covered bridges within their own communities, and certainly a lot of the original Connecticut River crossings were were covered um, mm. and it 
just you know because the the definition of a covered bridge is that the trusses are covered and you want you want to protect the wood as much as possible so gotcha if you cover it it will last over 100 years if it's cared for properly and if not uh, it'll only last about 20 so i think a lot well, of people think in terms of a covered bridge is simply like they define it as there's a roof but right. that's not the case. You're talking about covering the actual support structure on the sides as well. Yes. Yeah, that yes. makes sense. Interesting. Um, and then when these settlements grew up, so essentially they had a number of different priorities when they had these communities building up. They'd have to build a schoolhouse. They would typically have to build a church. Mm -hmm. And then right along that, I, I would assume the same group of people that are building the churches and the schoolhouses are also looking at any major river crossings and mm -hmm. determining, you know, where they might be able to place a covered bridge. Is there any have you in your historical research, have you do you have any sense on how they would go about picking a specific location? Uh, would it just be proximity to the village or would they have to look for certain characteristics on either side? Um, I, th I think it probably has to do with both. Um, one, one example is the, uh, is Campton's Blair Bridge. They, yep. um, people would cross the river. They would just ford across. So they would go across the ice. And, um, in the 1820s, they built a church on the other side of the river. And so people wanted to commute there. And they had just hired a local doctor from, from Dartmouth, and he was crossing on the ice in the wintertime, and his horse fell through, and he fell through, and the horse drowned. He, he made it. Um, but wow. you don't want to lose your brand-new doctor from Dartmouth. So that prompted <laughs> the community to raise the funds to build the first bridge there. So. Huh. Uh, in these early bridges, obviously they were they were probably somewhat crude. But can you talk about at what point did the knowledge of bridge building and particularly like cover bridges and the components of it get to the point where uh, there was, I guess, experts that that were available to go around, or was it always just mostly people relying on um, carpentry skills within the villages? Mm -hmm. I, I think it, it also depends on which community you're in. Um, there are a lot of existing covered bridges that were built by local timber framers, carpenters. There are also covered bridges um, that followed the, um, the first, the first patent was the 1820 town trust patent. And it was patented by a Connecticut gentleman named Ithiel town. And that, that patent uses um, smaller timbers. It's that lattice, the town lattice truss. It looks like garden lattice. If you can, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. This is hard for me to do without my my photos. <laughs> but um, but that that patent allowed communities to purchase the patent, and you could you could purchase it for a dollar a foot if you asked uh, to use it, or two dollars a foot if they found out that you used it without without asking. <laughs> um, and it it allowed communities to use lighter timbers than what. Um, other bridge designs called for, and it also uh, allowed unskilled workers to work to, to build those bridges. So towns didn't have to hire somebody who was skilled to come in necessarily. And then following that, there were several other pat bridge trust designs that were patented. There was the Long Trust in 1830 and the Howe Trust in 1840. So hmm. um, if, you know, and depending on which community you were in, you know, you may hire someone to come in to build it for you, or you may have someone local build it for you. 
Okay. And I don't know, I'm not, I don't have an engineering background. and I, 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 I don't either. <laughs> so, all right. So, I mean, you, I guess within your, within your, your depth of knowledge, um, can you just briefly explain as best you know about sort of the engineering and how exactly do these relatively long spans, um, are they set up, how are they enabled to carry the load? Mm-hmm. So, I, we talked about a truss earlier, and the, the trusses, it's a series of triangles that, when they're connected, enable the even distribution of weight and the handling of compression and tension. So the truss is the, the parts of the covered bridge on the side that you see, mm-hmm. um, and typically they're connected to um, an upper cord, if there's, especially if there's a roof, um, and connected to the, to the bottom cord. Um, and that, those triangles support the weight. Some covered bridges you'll see have added arches inside that 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 help support the weight or load um, of the bridge. Okay. And then when it comes to maintaining these, I'm I'm assuming that the the people that are looking at that they're looking to see that the the weight is evenly distributed across the trusses, so they can sort of test out the tension on them. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's yeah, that's the long and short of it. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, Stomp, I don't know how much of an engineering background you have, but uh, <laughs> some of these these bridges are pretty long. Yeah, which is interesting how they can they can hold that much weight. Yeah, it's impressive. Um, I'm also very impressed by the foundations. Uh, you mentioned the Blair Bridge, and that's a bridge that we typically see when we're floating the Pemi during the summer, and mm-hmm. it just strikes me as incredible the size of the stones that are supporting either side you know as the as the land meets the water mm-hmm. it's amazing you can tell that it was built hundreds of years ago mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and if you cool. if you if you look at those stones really closely so that that the original bridge, I think, was built in 1824, and yeah. it was destroyed by an arsonist in 1869. And you can see the cracks in the stones from the 1869 fire. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. See, this is really neat, because a lot of our listeners, I mean, they hike, but they may not have noticed that they're crossing over so many of these bridges. Like, for instance, you know, going into Jackson, New Hampshire, you're crossing that covered bridge, uh, or the Blair. Um, there are so many of these bridges around, and uh, sometimes we don't think of the history behind them. Right. And, and that's something I had never really thought about either, and, and I hope that, you know, people will will stop and think about it, because those, we, you know, New Hampshire had, at one time had probably over 350 covered bridges. And now we have about 70 authentic covered bridges and 46 of them are, are over 100 years old. And they're still standing there because of the engineers and the bridge rights and the timber framers and the local community who have remained committed not only to fund the work, but to, to fix the bridge properly yeah. and, and try to keep it as authentic as they possibly can. Um, is there any, are you aware of any sort of famous failures or bridge collapses that have happened with covered bridges? Well, I, 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 I thought about that a lot when you sent me the question. I, yeah. I, most of the f- bridge collapses that I'm aware of are from weather or from mm-hmm. arson. Um, okay. Arson is still the number one cause of loss of covered bridges Jeez. today. Yeah. yeah. It's like a big target. I would assume somebody wants to send a message or somebody has that sort of 
that arson mm-hmm. affliction like that that's just a tempting tempting target for them yeah. unfortunately there was a um in in Swansea Swansea has four covered bridges and uh the first one there was a bridge in um it was built I'm not sure when the original one was built but um in 1842, there was a local man driving his wagon train through the bridge, and the bridge collapsed. And he um, he lived, and he actually sued the town of Swansea for for uh, for damages. And 20 years later, they built another slate bridge, and that one was definitely covered. And um, that one was destroyed by arson in 1993, and it was rebuilt in 2001. Uh, they. Um yeah, it seems like the, I've I've read a number of different cases of arson, and then obviously there's nowadays like those bridges weren't always the bridges weren't always set up for modern vehicles, so uh, especially these big giant trucks that come through. So I'm assuming that they they probably get some damage from from vehicles now constantly, yeah. constantly, and I can't I just can't wrap my head around it. Clearly, if you're driving an oversized vehicle, you should be able to read um, yes. <laughs> and read. Read the height sign that is clearly posted. Well, that brings up a question: EVs. EVs are extraordinarily heavy. Have, has there been talk in the bridge community about the impact of EV cars? I haven't heard. Interesting. Yeah, you might want to keep an ear out for that because um, problems are popping up across the nation just really? with overweighted um yeah the they're they're extremely heavy so you're running into situations where parking garages aren't uh rated for the weight of the cars and they're having structural issues so i would assume it would translate to bridges as well oh i haven't heard of that i i i I do wish that google maps would come up with some type of alert when you're approaching a covered bridge because so many of the of the people that get caught the ones that actually get caught for going through the bridges will say that they were just following what their what their gps told them to do yeah i uh yeah we've we've run into that too with people that are trying to go through like the um those seasonal roads they get directed through the wrong area so yes it's interesting, but there is uh, a number of covered bridges in the White Mountains. So you sent us over some chapters to preview, uh, but there's there's three, I believe. Oh, f- yeah, th- three that you had called out. So there's in the Flume Gorge, there's Sentinel Pine, yeah. and then there's the the Clark's um, covered bridge. Can you talk a oh, little yeah. bit about those three? Sure. So um, there's if you go into the Flume. National or the Flume State Park, there are two covered bridges there. One is Mm -hmm. the Flume Bridge, which is pictured everywhere. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful red bridge. And that the bridge has been, there's not a lot of, first of all, there's sometimes there are really excellent records on covered bridges. And that made me so happy. (laughs) I would show up at a town or I'd reach out to somebody and they would say, here's all of our documents you know, have have at it. Sometimes people just didn't keep track. Um, and the Flume Bridge was a perfect example of that. There are not a lot of records to be found. It was um, private property for a while before it was sold uh, to the state. And um, so there aren't a lot of records. Some records will say it was built in 1871. And the sign on the bridge says um, 1886. But there's still no proof of that. Um, whatever was there, if it was there, and there was a bridge there, I'm sure whatever it was was damaged by the flume slide in 1883. So I'm assuming 1886 is probably the proper, the proper um, date for that 
for that bridge. Um, and I actually have a question on this, and mm-hmm. it's not related to the flume-covered bridge, but most of the bridges, like I picture like sort of the iconic red and white, uh, you know, red color with the white trim. Has that always been the case that these bridges have been painted that color, or is that just a couple of the more famous bridges like that? So I just have a bias thinking that they're all red and white. Well, people do think that. Um, I I don't think so. Um, I know that the um, the the Jackson Bridge for a long time has been, uh, or, or the Honeymoon Bridge, but in Jackson they prefer you to call it the Jackson Bridge, um, <laughs> has been red for a while. But a lot of bridges are actually white, um, and some of them are just natural wood, so it really depends. They're all very different if you go across the state and see them all, which you should. Mm-hmm. I know it's it's sort of like I, I'm going to pay more attention now. I promise, but it, <laughs> they you, you appreciate them when you go over them. But a lot of times you're driving by and you're like, oh yeah, it's just part of the landscape. But you know, it's right. a stop. Absolutely. Right. And and the 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 one neat thing too about the Flume Bridge, it's it uses what's called a Paddleford truss, and the Paddleford truss was um, first or it was created by a gentleman named Peter Paddleford from. Littleton, and that Paddleford Trust really dominated covered bridge building in that northern part of of New New Hampshire over into Maine, Um, and there were only 22 Paddleford Trust covered bridges left. And is it the is the 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 technique? It looks like he's got I don't know what they are four by sixes or something like that, but they're straight up, and then he's got basically a V cutting across those. Is that the is that his trust style? Yeah, it's it's a variant of the long trust, which was a patent uh, a patented trust design. And there's been a lot of back and forth about whether Paddleford tried to patent his trust. Uh, some people say he was challenged in court by Long, but there's no evidence to that. Um, but he, you know, I, I, a lot of people in the covered bridge community don't think he even wanted to have have a patent because he didn't. It didn't matter to him, um, but the. He worked with Charles Broughton from Conway and Jacob Berry and his son Jacob Berry, um, also from Conway, and they a lot, they used the Paddleford Trust in almost every every bridge that they built. So, in Sentinel Pine, can you talk about uh, that bridge? Yeah, so the Sentinel Pine Bridge is is really neat. It was named after the Sentinel Pine, which was a 175 foot tall, uh, 16 feet in diameter pine tree that stood over the pool at at the flume and in the hurricane of 1939 the sentinel pine fell and Mm. the national the white mountain yeah the yeah the white mountain forest um they service wanted yes thank you (laughs) yeah they decided to use the uh the the tree to cross to cross the the pool so they they sectioned it off um and uh and and built, yeah, they sectioned off a 60-foot piece of the tree, and they laid it over the PEMI, and um, and they used other parts of the blown-down tree to build the rest of, of the bridge. And if, you, if you're if you there and you crawl underneath it, which I don't know if you're supposed to, but someone I know may have done that, you <laughs> you can see the pine, and it's it's really neat to, to, to look at it and see it there. Um, it's It's been reinforced over over the years. Wow, that's neat history. Mm-hmm. And this is a pretty iconic photo spot, right? Because it's it's sort of over a um, a little waterfall, and when the foliage hits, it's, it looks like you get a pretty good view of it from a side angle. 
Yep, you do. And I was actually out there this winter with Tracy and Captain Chris, and there were people mm. ice, ice climbing. So we got to watch that, which was which mm-hmm. is really neat. It's a neat spot. Yeah. And then uh, the Clark's tra- is it? Do you call it the Clark's Trading Post Bridge, or do you just call it the Clark's Bridge? Well, it's called Clark's Bridge. Um, okay. But yeah, because Clark's Trading Post is now Clark's Bears. Oh, true, true. Yeah. So. Um, this is a crazy story. So this is a a bridge that was in one location and then disassembled by the Clark family yep. and then reinstalled in their their uh, their their amusement park or whatever yeah, for you the call train. It. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. So the the bridge was originally built in 1904 in in Barrie, Ver- Vermont, um, and it was part of the the Barrie Railroad line. And when that line was discontinued in early 1960, the bridge was purchased by a private person, and the Clark's brothers really wanted to bring the White Mountain Railroad to their property. So they um, approached this gentleman and they bought the bridge in 1963 for the body of a 1919 Ford Model T touring car and a thousand dollars. And it's a pretty good deal, uh, you think? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so they went out and uh, they disassembled this 120 foot railroad bridge uh, in the winter. I might add, <laughs> they took it apart piece by piece, and they numbered every piece, and they brought it back to Clark's, and um, they uh, they also constructed the abutments from granite blocks that were taken from a main central railroad river crossing. So they they took those apart too, brought them back to Clark's, numbered them, put them up, and uh, so it took them a year to put the bridge back together. And this is my favorite; they called it playing bridge. It's the best, <laughs> best story ever. This is an amazing bridge, and this is an example. So um, the the Flume Bridge is exposed trusses that have, you know, they have a roof over them protecting them, but from the side, they're not as protected. Mm-hmm. This bridge with the uh, the train the train bridge, the, the trusses are fully encased yes. by, by wood. Do you find, is it traditionally the case that like the, the fully encased bridges tend to last longer or does that not make a difference? It's more location. I think it, it depends on how the weather comes into the bridge. There are several bridges that are open or have partial openings. And typically you'll see that on one side of the bridge or, or, or the other. Um, but every bridge is different. Most of the railroad bridges, these through truss bridges that I've seen have are mostly fully um, sided. And and Clark's Bridge is is special. It's the only active covered railroad bridge still in use in the world. Wow. And I can only imagine like this. So they did this in the 1960s where they disassembled it. They manually numbered everything and then had to you know figure out how they were going to put the footings in but then they mm-hmm. they just rebuilt it uh i can only imagine like they have a warehouse or is there any pictures of the of the bridge disassembled in, in the archives yes um actually clark's uh has a fabulous book that they've put together about the whole process so oh, wow. it has a lot of photos and really great stories wow um <laughs> Any interesting characters? So we talked about the Clarks, but like, is there any interesting characters in New Hampshire history tied to covered bridges? Um, I don't know about characters necessarily, but what I have done, I'm still doing research on the namesakes of the covered bridges. And um, 
So there's a covered bridge in uh, Warner called the Dalton Bridge, and it's unique in that it's the only covered bridge in the state named after a woman. Um, she <laughs> owned that she was a widow. She was widowed twice, actually, and um, she purchased her own property in 1853 when the bridge was built. So every reference in the old record says build the bridge near the widow Dalton. And it was pretty rare for a woman to own property then. And I think that's, that's really special. And the Durgan bridge in sandwich is named after James Durgan and his wife, Jane Hersey Varney, who's no relation to me, but I wish she was. Um, And they were an underground railroad stop. Oh, wow. So that's kind of a fascinating story. Yeah. So, so Stomp is like a, um, he's a, you know, on the 93 side of New Hampshire, where I'm on, I'm on Route 16 side of New Hampshire when I, when I travel. So I'm a North mm-hmm. Conway person. He's more of a Lincoln person. So he's got like the Campton area. But for me, the Albany Bridge is the bridge. Well, Jackson too, but the Albany Bridge is the covered bridge when I think <laughs> of it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I go up over there quite a bit, or, you know, hiking and, and just driving up the Kank and whatnot. So can you talk about the, and the Albany Bridge is interesting because, yeah, I've definitely seen like graffiti in there. I've seen cars hit it. I've seen, um, you know, I've seen it be like shut down because of issues and things like that. But mm-hmm. the maintenance on that, the, the amount of traffic that goes over that, I would think that of all the covered bridges, that's got to be one of the covered bridges in the state that gets the most um, vehicle traffic. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, yeah. the mo- I think I would, uh, there are a lot of really active vehicle traffic bridges. And if you haven't been to the Cornish Windsor bridge, you should, it's a okay. still, it's still a two lane, uh, bridge that crosses the um, Connecticut river. It's 460 feet long and there's a lot of traffic there. Okay. All right. So I may be showing my bias of where I spend time. So yeah, but um, no, it, it's been hit multiple times, um, multiple times and, and keeping, you know, people with spray paint cans off of covered bridges seems to be a problem. Yes. Everywhere. Yeah, it certainly does. So, and I, I read the chapter in the book about the Albany Bridge, and it's interesting sort of the, the political squabbling around, um, I guess, sort of ownership and responsibility for maintenance. Um, there's a lot of sort of back and forth about, you know, whether the, the, the specific town that the bridge is in is responsible, whether the New Hampshire Highway Department, whether the Forest Service is responsible. So a lot of politics back and forth about um, sort of the, the, the maintenance and responsibility. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like at the end of the day, if, if they can't figure out who has um, guardianship over a bridge, does... does how does that work? Well, in in this case, they seem they seem to have worked it out um, over time. But but again, it was you know kind of like just good good faith. You know, the bridge needed work, and either the town would work on it or the Forest Service worked on it. And so again, there aren't a lot of records. Um, but when you know push came to shove in the early nineties, because it needed the bridge needed you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of work. So they, they took it to a town vote, and the town some people in the town wanted to give ownership of that Dugway Road and the bridge over to the Forest Service, and they had a vote, and it failed. Um, 21 yes to 41 no. So <laughs> yeah. huh. They don't want to give anything up to the government, no, right? No, they don't. Uh, mm. But since then, they've, they've, they've managed um, to partner together 
to work on the bridge and and bridges that are um, owned by towns and that carry traffic can apply for state bridge aid and that's a a program that's been in effect in effect since 1953 and it offers communities um 80 percent funding for 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 bridge work and that albany bridge did see some work that was funded through that that process um are there any covered bridges that have been disassembled and then reassembled in like somebody's yard or 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 just move privately. Are you aware of somebody's yard? I don't know. Um, well, I do know that Dover had a covered bridge, and um, okay. it was in their kind of downtown area. They sold it for a dollar to the town of Belmont, and now Belmont has it on their their rail trail. Oh, One comes that's to a mind. Good, the re- yeah, yeah. On three hundred two, so there's it, that. I'm sorry. There's that that bridge as you're heading th- past Bartlett or before Bartlett, and it's a um, it's a, a store. store. It's a store. Yeah, it's a store. Yeah. yeah, so that that it's the the Bartlett Bridge, and it was built in the 1870s. And um, when they bypassed the road, which thankfully they bypassed the road and didn't just tear the bridge down, which right. happened a lot. Um, the the town of Bartlett tried to get rid of the bridge for a very long time. Um, they tried to sell it. Nobody wanted it. They used it for for storage. And uh, a woman, uh, she was a needlepoint seamstress. Um, you know, crafts craftsman, and she uh, lived next door, and she wanted a a gift shop. So yeah. she hired um, Milton and Arnold Grayton, who are uh, Milton has since passed, but they um, really made a, a huge dent in how we uh, preserve covered bridges That's in really the mean. state. Arnold is an amazing ass. He's a, the most pre- premier bridge right in the world, and he lives here in in New Hampshire, and we're we're very proud. But mm. uh, they built a gift shop. And they fixed the bridge, they put the gift shop in it, and it's still there today. Yeah, yeah. all right. So that for the listeners that aren't aware of this, this, so this is on 302 as you leave, um, you know, heading towards Jackson, but you stay on 302 like you're going to go up towards um, Sawyer River Road. Uh, so before you get to Attach, it's on the right-hand side, and... You know, I actually wasn't sure. I was going to ask you about that too, but Stomp brought it up. But I didn't know if that was just like a like a faux covered bridge. But that's a real covered bridge. It's a real covered bridge. Well, yeah, because I've been in there a couple times. That's a that's. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back in there now. <laughs> and the person that owns that, he's he's like the main bridge right. Well, person? he worked on it. Yeah, he doesn't he own it. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The people that own the the bed and breakfast next door own the yeah, bridge. Yeah, I've, I've stayed at okay. that place. Yeah, it's a really yeah. nice bed and breakfast. It is. Yeah, and there are. I think there are four other covered bridges that are privately owned uh, in the state. Campton has one called Turkey Jim's Bridge, which is on the Branch Brook Campground. And oh yeah, that yeah that bridge was named after uh, a gentleman who had a had a turkey farm there, and his name was Jim Cummings. So <laughs> that's where the name comes from. That's really cool. There are some oh, other ones that come to mind too. So like, I think of um, there are a couple in Haverhill or North Haverhill heading over to Vermont. I would assume anything crossing over the Connecticut is is pretty sturdy and covered. How many how many bridges span the length of the Connecticut between New Hampshire and Vermont? Do you have any idea? I I do. So there's the Cornish Windsor. I do. There's the Cornish Windsor that we mentioned. That's a stupid question. No, no, no. It's not at all. Um, there's the uh, Mount Orne Bridge in Lancaster, and there's the the Columbia Bridge in Columbia, and then um, one of the 
Pittsburgh bridges crosses the Connecticut River. See, I guess I don't yeah. know. <laughs> no, no. But one of them crosses. Yeah. In all these bridges, you've got chapters about all these bridges in your book. I do. And I do. so every bridge in New Hampshire is covered with a chapter. Every, I see what you <laughs> did there. Every bridge, um, every bridge that has a number is covered in the book. Okay. And yeah. And so there are, there are 58 covered bridges that have a number in the state and the, the numbering system started in the eight, in the 1950s. Uh, there was a covered bridges of New Hampshire association, which doesn't exist. And they put out a book with beautiful sketches and very short bios of the bridges, but they numbered them in kind of a driving order starting in where I live over here in the western southwestern part of the state, and then they numbered them kind of as, as if you were going to drive around. Hmm. Over time, there have been other bridges added, so the numbers don't take you on that route necessarily. Um, so, but I stopped. I stopped with the bridges that were numbered, and then I included the three boxed pony bridges this in the cool. book. But there are seven or eight more that I I oh. could have included, but I had to stop somewhere. I, I have so many. Like I, I know they're always in the periphery of my vision. Like for instance, the uh, the bridge south of Conway, the Conway Scenic Railroad. That's covered, right? The Isn't that the Saco? Well, there's a Saco River Bridge. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. River bridge. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you're on Route 16. You have to bank that left to go towards North Conway or Conway. Yeah. There's that. It's right to the yes. left. Oh, that, you know that one. That, cause that's, yeah, because you can only go one way. And I always like, I'll go when I'm not supposed to go. And someone gets <laughs> mad at me. And I go, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> hey, how about um, Stark? Stark has a bridge, too. Yes, it does. Yeah, it, that's I, a beauty. I, it, yep. They claim to be the most photographed covered bridge in the state. Oh, which, I bet. With that cliff in the background. Probably yeah. is. So, Kim, hmm. let me ask you this. I'm curious. So, like, this is like a very niche hobby, but, you know, like hiking, we always have drama between hike. Like, is there any drama between, like, the covered bridge experts, or are you guys all pretty friendly? <laughs> it's going to be like a small community. So, You want me to answer that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, like, my un- So, I'll tell you a story here. Okay. I'll talk. So, my uncle, Bob McLaughlin, he is into old amusement parks. So he's written books about uh, Pleasure Island, which was an amusement park in Wakefield. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's another one in New York. So the guy that um, the guy that designed Disneyland for Walt Disney came to Massachusetts and created another amusement park in the in the 50s through the 60s. And then he did another one in New York. So my uncle is like the expert who like wrote the books about the history of these parks. But I feel like there's some drama in his little community. So I didn't know if there was drama in yours, but... <laughs> Well, I think I think um, I think there's drama in every community, right? And oh, yeah. but I, I think some of the some of the big conversations that I've had with people is around how we repair authentic covered bridges, and oh, yeah. and there are people who feel very strongly and rightfully so that we should use as authentic methods as as we possibly can to preserve the craftsmanship. Okay, and sometimes communities either can't afford that or they choose not to afford that and they'll use you know they'll put steel beams under the bridge to hold it up they'll use glue glue lamb timbers which is not you know what you should be using perhaps mm-hmm. depending on how you feel about it um, so sometimes communities have to to compromise to save their covered bridge but it's not it's no longer an authentic covered bridge okay yeah because that's, that's that's common like I live in the 
you know, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts, but I'm sort of in the, um, you know, Seacoast District, Amesbury, Newburyport. And there's a lot of historical homes and there's historical societies. So mm-hmm. there's only certain things you can do with the houses that are deemed historic. So I would assume some towns may deem the bridges as historic and they, mm-hmm. they want to go by you know, certain rules, and then others may not care as much. So. Right. And if you're, if, you're, if you're using federal funding, which there isn't any now, but there used to be, um, there, are, there are standards that you have to ad- adhere to if you're restoring an historic um, covered bridge. Mm-hmm. So, and that, you know, that, that changes things. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot of red, red, red tape, but it's to ensure that the bridge is fixed properly. Okay. And that's important. Does, does New Hampshire, um, and I know they have all kinds of different like themes for license plates and things. Like that. Does New Hampshire do a good job as far as sort of marketing uh, the history of covered bridges in their their own brand? Like the you know like the old man on the mountains all over the place. But do they use covered bridges in that way? I I think so. Um, okay. You know when I started when I started this this journey, I, I started to think, well, when did I become aware of covered bridges? And really, it was. You know, I, I thought about going to Clark's Bears and going into the gift shop and just wanting everything. I want every pennant. I want every T-shirt. I want every coin purse that, you know, I didn't get. But there were covered bridges on them. You know, there were covered bridges. There were moose. There are bears. There are, you know, the old old man, of course. Um, and and I think, I think, I feel New Hampshire does a good job of, of using covered bridges as part of their, their marketing to entice people to come. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so now you you said you were you were afraid you were going to get the shame drop. So I'm I'm going to ask you a question here where you may get the shame drop. So you're in New Hampshire, you're the covered bridge expert, and you don't have to say the specific. If you do have this, you don't have to say the specific thing because I don't want to out you. But are you really the covered bridge expert in New Hampshire if you don't have a New Hampshire vanity plate that's a bridge themed? vanity plate well <laughs> i have a covered bridge vanity plate from 1974 okay in my right. house Ooh, this is close. not on my car <laughs> okay all right but i feel that you could have like the you know cvr brg or something well so. uh, no listen i have my dog on my plate and her name is pemmy so oh, uh, wait a minute do you have pemmy on your that's your that's your vanity yes plate? yeah okay well that's okay there's no shame so there's that. no shame now thank you wow how long have you had that plate for uh, I've had it for about six years. Really? Yeah. And it was available. It's Pemi Dash. Oh, got it, got it. Because right, somebody so. out there has Pemi, which they right. could give to me if they'd like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you don't get the shame draw. <laughs> Thank you. So um, where where can we get your book? Where can we listen to your podcast? Do you, what do you want to plug? Yeah. So what do I want to plug? Um, so you can go on the website. It's coveredbridgesnh.com. Um, and you can buy the book directly from me if you'd like to. You can buy it from local bookstores. It's it's available in almost every local bookstore in the state. If you want to buy it from Amazon, you can. You don't get as much money, no, so I, we'll, tr- no. we'll try to do it direct. No, I do not. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I I was fortunate to publish the book uh, through Peter E. Randall Publisher in mm-hmm. in Portsmouth. Um, Deirdre Randall was my publisher. She was a genius. I I spent two years sitting on my couch with my laptop writing on a Word document, and she sent me back this beautiful book. I just couldn't even believe it. And um, yeah, so it's 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 a self funded book. Um, so. You can buy, buy it any way that makes you happy, but I would prefer to support a local bookstore. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's I'll great. put all the links in our show notes so that uh, the listeners can can check it out, and we'll make sure that we post some stuff on our socials as well. Great. Yeah, and I'm I'm out and about. I'm do, I've I'm doing programs. It seems all the time. So that's great. <laughs> if anyone yeah. wants to listen to me talk some more, they can do that in person. And I also do have a podcast. It's not as cool as yours, but yeah. um, so what's the handle on uh, Instagram again? Uh, Covered Bridges of New Hampshire. There we go. Yeah, you're out and about for sure. I am, and and Pemmy has her own Instagram. If you want to follow her, ooh, I will. Her, what are, what's her handle? Pemmy the hiking therapy dog. Okay, <laughs> because Pemmy. that's what she is. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's great. What kind of dog is it? She's a chocolate. Okay, awesome. I will check that out, and then mm. um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. This is how you're a podcaster expert. So hopefully we're professional. Uh, I am not an expert. I'm in my living room. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the laundry room's right next. To Shame. I'm in my basement. Shame. <laughs> I am not an expert, but I love podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie, and and I and I really enjoy listening to you guys. So that's well, great. Well, thank you. Then thank you so much for joining us, and um, it would definitely. Uh, I'm going to continue reading more about the book, and we'll we'll make sure that um, now that when the listeners. Get out there and they're driving around. We're all going to be looking at the covered bridges. Excellent. It's going to like have them to the side of our eyes. So. Excellent. That's what I hope. And don't hit them if you're driving a big truck. True. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right. Thank you for having me. You bet. All right. Thanks. All right, stop. So uh, now that we are driving around New Hampshire, we're going to be paying much better attention <laughs> to the covered bridges situation, right? Yeah. Who knew? I mean, I, I knew about the big ones like Flume Gorge. I mean, as a hiker, Flume Gorge bridges are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Blair Bridge and a few others, but they're they're everywhere. You just have to keep your eyes open and they will arrive. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at some of the pictures as I was talking to Kim too, and I like, and I even mentioned this when I was talking to her about like how I always think they're all supposed to be red and white, but there is a lot of them that are sort of just weathered or or they're white only. So it's yeah. Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great feature living in New Hampshire that you've got all those bridges. Mm. You know, another one that came to mind after we uh, parted ways on that talk was the bridge behind Shillings and Littleton. There's a huge covered bridge right there. I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah, they are. So great, good stuff. So yeah, thank you, Kim. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much, and I hope that everybody enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, it was awesome. stop so now we're going to get into uh, recent search and rescue news we haven't um, covered this so I think we skipped a week or two so we got some news here so the first one uh, we want to give a shout out to our friend Corey Outdoors uh, he has given us a, a story about someone getting stuck in a trailhead <laughs> toilet so <laughs> not the first yeah, so I didn't read this one ahead of time, Stomp. So is this a case of somebody getting stuck inside the actual part that you use, or is this just somebody getting stuck inside a door? 
they got stuck inside the actual privy. Oh, no. Okay, so here we go. (laughs) Outside Magazine had this. So it happened again, reminiscent of a similar story from May 2022. On Tuesday, September 19, the rescue personnel from Ostego County, Michigan, received a call from a visitor at the Dixon Lake Boat Launch, a recreational area. So immediately when I hear boat launch, like there had to be alcohol involved. Um, So it's about (laughs) an an hour south of Cheboygan. So the incident report said a woman was stuck at the bottom of an outhouse and was screaming for help. I mean, that's just assumed. I'd be screaming for help, too. How the heck does that happen? Uh, A lot of alcohol (laughs) stuff. These boaters are (laughs) out of control. Trust me. Wow. Um, If listeners are, if any listeners are into boating, like just confirm my theory that like there's a lot of alcohol going on there. Unless you're like an ectomorph or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do once a year. I go on the boat, and like, I I don't drink when I'm driving, but it's there's a lot of alcohol going on. So, crews from three different agencies arrived about 30 minutes after the initial call. So she's in, (laughs) she's up to her elbows, and you know what, um, (laughs) for 30 minutes, and they came and hoisted her out. She later told officers that she was attempting to fetch her Apple Watch from the (gasps) depths of the toilet when she lost her balance and fell into the mountain of poo. And pee at That's the bottom. That's Augustus gloop. <laughs> it's an Augustus gloop. Yep. Yeah. Like hands yeah. down. Wow. Can I tell you, like when I go into these outhouses, like I, the iron grip I have on my phone, and like double checking my watches, and like nothing that could fall goes anywhere near that that toilet. <laughs> uh, Augustus <So>. poop. <laughs> yeah. Augustus poop. So then I'm done. Wow. Thanks, Corey. Always, That's a great one. Always quality links. <laughs> yeah, you know, I gotta, I gotta look up that story again about the guy that, like, his kink was going into the uh, the outhouses and like just sitting Filming. inside of them while people do their business. Like, I, I oh there was God. a story in Maine about a guy that was into that. So, yeah, I think we'll be canceled if we cover that one. Yeah, well, I think we have covered it before, but it's it's a wild story. But anyway, moving on <laughs> to real local stories here. So, a hiker was rescued on the Tuckerman Ravine Trail. And uh, this happened on Wednesday, September 27th. So we've, we're, we're about two weeks behind. Yeah, um, it's been busy. 64-year-old gentleman from Methuen, Mass. That's my neck of the woods here. He was hiking alone with his dog on Tuckerman Ravine. Uh, well, he was coming down from the summit. He stepped on an unstable rock. So I'm assuming he might have been up on the up on the cone there because there's a lot of unstable rocks. So mm-hmm. he lost his footing and fell, sustaining non-life-threatening injuries. Uh, luckily enough, a fellow hiker came upon him and called 911 and AMC conservation officers and um, an AMC rescuer were able to respond from Hermit Lake Hut and administer uh, medical aid to uh, to this gentleman. So um, he was able to reach the Sherburn Ski Trail by, um, and they were able to get him out by ATV. So... Um, So yeah, so they were able to assist him back to the ATV with the aid of crutches and assistance of rescuers on the scene, and eventually he was driven down to Pinkham Notch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Assessment was done, and it was determined that he did not need medical transport from Pinkham Notch, so he was going to take himself to the hospital. So all's well that ends well, just a little slip, and it happens. It sure does. A couple Uh, plane crashes and uh, a helicopter crash this week, unusual. Yeah, yeah. So this next one is a plane crash. I read about this one. So this was a um, 
This was a fatality, I believe. So um, this report here is just the initial plane crash that happened on September 30th before 8 p.m. Fishing game was notified of a plane crash on Lake Winnipesaukee in Guilford. They conducted a search. They were able to locate debris in the water, but they weren't able to locate the pilot. Um, so I guess eventually the next day, they had to suspend the search that day. And then 1130 on October 1st, they were able to locate the pilot in nearly 60, in nearly 60 feet of water. Um, NTSB, so the National Transportation Safety Bureau, will investigate this and figure out the cause of the crash. But that's a mm -hmm. sad story, and it's got to be, um, you know, horrifying to be a pilot and know that you're going down. And you know, maybe you you have some hope that if you're going to hit water, you have a better chance of survival. But I think essentially yeah. it's like hitting concrete, regardless, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, based upon the results of most of these crashes, yeah, you could assume so. It's rare that people survive. Yeah, yeah. Would you, if again going back to my whole like, if you hit the lottery, would you would you do you think that you would like get a pilot license and and try to get into flying? No, is that something you're not interested in that too high risk? Absolutely. Yeah, feet on the ground. That's my motto. Okay. Do you, you fly like <laughs> you you do like flying to like vacation and stuff, right? Not in a very long time. Really? Can't remember the last time I flew. I think I flew during physical therapy school down to Florida uh, to St. Yeah. Pete's, and that was probably it. Are you like afraid to fly, or you just don't like you know you're not into traveling that much? Uh, I've not. I'm just not really into traveling. If I were to travel, I would do a. I, I find like a, a car trip, driving across country would be more romantic to me than flying to a location. I like the randomness yeah. of just jumping into a car and going. Well, um, yeah. if we're gonna do a trip, we're gonna have to fly because I don't want to do anything romantic with you. <laughs> well, I was yeah, I was thinking Mrs. Stomp. <laughs> But if okay, you're talking about you and me, then oh, I was going to say, yeah. huh. well, I have the my friend Tom. Like he's now now that we came back to Yosemite, he's already hitting me up for the next plan. He's like, oh, we really? could do the Grand Canyon, we could do oh. Iceland, we could do. He wants to do the the Tetons, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. Maybe we'll drive to stop. We'll take you along with us. Hmm. It won't you know be romantic. To mind though, first. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Nova Scotia. Let's go to Nova Scotia. We can okay. walk the hills. Yeah, we can do that. So. That's a boat ride. <laughs> yes, true. We can we can go. We can stop at Acadia. We we have that on our pocket. As a matter of fact, we, we got to do that first before we do anything. Yeah, yeah um, that's good. All right, this next one is on Monadnock. So this was on October first, around twelve fifteen. Uh, lost hiker. So Rangers are notified of a lost hiker. Um. The Rangers were able to provide. So somebody got a call from 911 and they were able to get the GPS coordinates for the hiker. And then oh, this is a weird, this is written strangely. So fishing game was notified by a Department of Natural and Cultural Resources Mountain Patrol Ranger about a lost hiker at Monadnock State Park. Rangers were able to provide conservation officers with cell phone GPS coordinates for the lost hiker. Mm -hmm. The lost hiker then request, was then requested to call 911 in order for them to confirm the coordinates. So I don't really understand oh. that. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Eventually, they found the coordinates, and they were able to locate the hiker on the north side of Monadnock between Pompelli and Dublin Trail, okay. and halfway up the summit, uh, between the summit and Old Troy Road in the town of Dublin. 
So it's within the park, but very rural with like not a lot of trails. So he was on like the other side of Pompeii Trail. So I'd never really been over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they found this 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 lady was a 56 year old lady from Weymouth, Mass. And she was given instructions to follow a stream down the mountain, and then conservation officers would meet with her. So they must have, like, just wow. figured out from her GPS coordinates. They looked on the map, saw that she was in a drainage, and just said, keep following it down. And around 1.30 or so, they located her, and they were able to transport her back to the state park headquarters. So no injuries or anything like that. She was prepared for a day hike, but she didn't have any sufficient means for navigating. So um, right. you see that a fair amount, in, uh, a fair amount on Monadnock. People get lost. Uh huh. So let me see this. So twelve fifteen, and then at one thirty, they located her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was daylight. So. Asking somebody to follow a stream down isn't completely unreasonable. I was thinking, boy, if it was like nighttime, that'd be pretty treacherous. True, but true, yeah. Interesting. True. You don't hear about that type of scenario too often. No, not at all. And like you can see, like I can see on the map here. Sorry, I'm looking at Geyer as we're talking, but like there's a big like... There's a bunch of like private land between the Dublin Trail and Pompeii Trail. So this is on like the very like like northeast side of the mountain where there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of like trail systems in between them so it looks like she sort of went off yeah. and got herself into that section there there is some private trails yeah. but i don't really know where the drainage is that she followed down but anyway i guess all's well that ends well that's an interesting <laughs> one it is different yeah yeah and then, cool. this is an area I'm not familiar with, Lost Hiker on Waypack National Wildlife Refuge. Do you know about this? I do not. I do not right. know this region. So this is in Greenfield, New Hampshire. So Bureau of Emergency Communications, so this is 911. Um, they were notified of a lost hiker. Um, they were able to provide the cell phone GPS coordinates for the lost hiker. This was a 68-year-old gentleman from Peterborough, New Hampshire. So this is, what is this, three incidents where they've relied on 911 GPS technology now, right, Tom? Right, that's right, yeah. So, um, interesting. So, 68-year-old gentleman from Peterborough, New Hampshire, the coordinates were used to map him between the Waypack Trail and Carolyn's Trail. So this area is rural in between the summit of North Pack Monadnock which is located within the refuge. So, right, I'm just not that familiar with this area. So they were eventually able to locate him. So they had local fire department and county sheriffs helping out along with a conservation officer. And like I said, the call came in around 11.50. Around 1.35, officers located the uh, the the hiker within 300 feet of his last known location. They were able to guide him out of the woods and he made it back around Two ten, so mm-hmm. it was about a two and a half hour incident for him. So um, he was well prepared, and he also possessed a valid twenty twenty three hike safe card. Okay, so hooray! Yeah, yeah. I'm doing some digging here about the. Uh, the I think it's Wapak. Wapak, yep. Yeah, wapak.org might be a good place to stop in to read about this place. There's quite a bit of history here. And um, wow, yes, yeah, the Wapak Trail, Mount Watadic, 
um, yeah, it seems like it's southern New Hampshire, near, um, you know, four miles from New Hampshire Route 123, Mass Route 119, definitely south, but beautiful pictures. Yeah, I know um, at some point, Stomp, we need to get down in that area. I've always had like the Sunapee Green Greenway Trail like on the bucket list to check out and, you know, some other stuff. So we, we got to get down in that area at some point. Yeah. Yep, Temple Mountain Ski Area. Yes, so there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's do a let's do a talk about this a segment about it because there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to do some digging. But okay. So next up is um, stop me if you've heard this one before. Stop. But unprepared hikers Ta-da. on Falling Waters Trail. No. Believe Falling it or not. People. So. Yep. Seven oh <laughs> falling people. Seven oh five p.m. <laughs> on Wednesday, October fourth. Fishing game gets a call for two hikers that have lost the trail. Due to lack of sufficient lights, Stomp. I gotta do. I gotta pull together the data for this year. But I do believe that in the last like two months or so, the sixty-year-old, the sixty to sixty-nine-year-old crowd has like really taken the lead in in rescues this year. I think you're right. I've uh, noticed yeah, that as well. A lot of sixty-somethings. So, <clears throat> yeah. Um, but anyway, so October fourth, seven oh five p.m. Two hikers had lost the trail due to lack of sufficient lights. They were cold, wet, and without any food or water, and unsure how to continue. So this has hit the panic button. So sixty-five-year-old from New York, New York, and a sixty-nine-year-old from Fernandina Beach, Florida. So they set out at seven a.m. Stomp. Yeah. For a nine-mile hike. Crack of dawn. And it's 7.05 p.m. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a day. That's a long day. So um, they had summited Mount Lafayette, Mount Lincoln, and Little Haystack. Right. But unfortunately, the hike took longer than they expected, mm-hmm. which would explain why they started at 7 a.m. and it's now 7 p.m. and they're still on trail. <laughs> um, wow. They ran out of water and they ran out of daylight, causing them to lose the trail. So mm-hmm. a conservation officer responded to the mountain and hiked 1.3 miles up Falling Waters Trail, reaching the pier at 8.35 and then gave them lights and assisted them down the trail and they were out by 10. So that's good. They were able to hike out on their own, but Pretty that's much. a long day. It sure is. It's amazing. This is the definition of biting off more than you can chew. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. But uh, 1.3 out to the trailhead is not too shabby. They were close. They were close. I wonder if they were near any water. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. How do you get thirsty on falling waters? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, It's just just asking. (laughs) So my my wife's cousin, uh, so Uncle Fran is my wife's uncle, and her cousin, Jessica, so they're from Long Island, and Fran's a character. He's the one, I don't know if you have this family member, but he's the he's the family member that writes the Christmas letter that, like, updates everyone on what's going <laughs> yes. on with the family for the year. Like, I love, yeah, yeah. every year, like, Uncle Fran sends a letter, and I immediately, like, I'm like, everything stops. I'm reading the letter. I get so That's excited. Great. So, And Jessica is my wife's cousin, but she's like, she was like probably 15 years younger, though, 10 years younger than everybody else. She was like the baby. 
but Jessica took Fran on Franconi. This is like 10 years ago. And I think that Jessica and Fran were sort of like these two. <laughs> From what I can tell, I think that Fran was not prepared to like go across the ridge and it was like a total disaster and they almost died, but like they sort of don't admit it, but they kind of admit it. So right. <laughs> I got to ask Jessica next time I see her. Um, so I had done the Pemi loop with her husband last year, the overnight. So I got to, I got to dig into that story a little bit more. Maybe I'll have her on to share her falling people story. That's excellent. <laughs> um, okay. So next up, there's an injured hiker on Pine Mountain. Right. So I think this is up in Littleton. Pine Mountain is a Gorham. Oh, okay. Gorham. I'm thinking of something different. Yeah. And I actually cringe when I saw this because Stomp, I always talk about this one as being one of the hikes I recommend for fall foliage because it's one of those ones that like drops you in the middle of like really good foliage. So I hopefully this wasn't a listener that got hurt. Huh. Okay. Let's check it out. So 12 p.m. on October 8th. Um, fishing game conservation officers were notified of an injured hiker on Pine Mountain Trail, approximately a half a mile from Pine Mountain Road. So the call came in via a 911 call reporting an unknown leg injury. So Andrew Scoggin, search and rescue, conservation officers um, arrived. 56-year-old gentleman from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, had been on a day hike with his wife when he slipped on wet ground near the summit and sustained a significant leg injury. While waiting for a rescue response, other Good Samaritan hikers who came upon him helped secure his injury. Like, I bet you those Good Samaritan hikers are the ones that were listening to the show that we recommended they hike there. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, so the first rescuers arrived at one thirty and placed the uh, the victim in a rescue litter. And then three Avsar volunteers, a conservation officer, and five Good Samaritans helped carry the victim down to Pine Mountain Road, and from there he was placed in a private vehicle and driven out to Pinkham B Road, where he was transferred into a Gorham ambulance, and then he got to Androscoggin Valley Hospital in Berlin for treatment of his injury. So, all's good. Yeah. Teamwork makes the dream work. That's right. That yeah. is right. Nice job, nice. Absar. Yes, yeah. And I see uh, Zylo walking around behind. <laughs> yes. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. He waits hey, for um, the moments where I'm not looking, and then he starts chewing on audio cables. And I wonder why my computer's always a mess. Right, right. Hey, funny story about Zylo, by the way, Stomp. Okay, what? What? So Mrs. Mike uh, pays attention to the Instagram a little bit. So okay. she picked up that um, the, I forget the photographer, the artist's name that had uh, put together the, uh, the Zylo-inspired art for you. Yes, yes. So um, I think you had posted a picture of it. It arrived at the house. Correct. So Stomp has a new Xylo themed. Um, it's like a wooden, uh, it's a, like a close-up of sort of wood grain. It's really cool. It's beautiful. So I was explaining to Mrs. Mrs. Mike was asking, she's like, what is that? And I was like, oh, Stomp got that from a listener. So Mrs. Mike immediately is like, well, why aren't you getting free stuff from listeners? <laughs> And I said to her, well, I mean, the, list, the listener was inspired by Stomp's cat. Correct. So if you want to get free stuff, we, we want it, we we're going to have to get a cat. And she said, <laughs> oh, never mind, forget it. Or a dog. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Oh, my God. She, she was jealous until she found out that I had to get, I had to get a cat. So then, then she changed her mind quick. She changed, <laughs> the, same, changed the subject. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so next one here, Stomp. Helicopter crash in Croydon. I don't know where Croydon is. I'm not sure. Maybe, I think it's in Grafton. Really? Yeah, Grafton Cro- County anyway. Croydon, New Hampshire. Yeah, Croydon. Croydon. Oh, it's by yeah. Sunapee. All right, that would make sense. So, um don't spend much time out there. So 10, 12, uh, 10, 20 p.m. on Sunday the 8th, October 8th, fishing game was notified of a possible helicopter crash <clears throat> in Croydon. So JBI Helicopter Services out of Pembroke, New Hampshire, reported one of their helicopters departed from their location in Croydon around 7.30. After it departed, the helicopter couldn't be tracked on radar by the employees. Generally, a position is sent from the helicopter every couple of minutes to enable the pinpointing of the helicopter's flight pattern. It was scheduled to fly to a job site in Quonset, Rhode Island, and arrive later that evening. Uh, Fishing game officers, New Hampshire State Helicopter, New Hampshire State Police Helicopter Unit, and members of the Croydon Fire Department responded to Pine Hill Road to search for the missing helicopter. And around 1.50 a.m. on Monday, it was located by a ground search crew in the woods off of Pine Hill Road. Substantial damage uh, was done to the helicopter, and the pilot was found deceased. So that's yeah. terrible. Yeah, that's awful. Uh, yeah, so conservation that's officers funny. and members of the Croydon, Springfield, and Grantham Fire Departments assisted in the short carryout to an awaiting UTB, UTV. So the pilot was a 73-year-old uh, from Loudon, New Hampshire, and he'd been a pilot for 50 years and had started working for the JBI uh, helicopter services in the 1980s. So, I mean, at that point, he's probably like family to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, terrible. Yeah. Under that's, investigation, so no uh, idea as to what happened. Yeah, that is terrible. That's terrible. I was at the Freiburg Fair this weekend, Stomp, and they have like two helicopters going back and forth, and I was thinking to myself, like, I'm not getting in one of those. Well, I was going to say, if you were offering to take me somewhere in a helicopter, I'd probably have to say no as well. <laughs> well, it depends. If it was like Captain, if it was like Luke, I would go up, but it's not. I'm not going oh, in yes. one of those little tiny ones. You would, you would do a Blackhawk? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. I trust them. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then last but not least, Stomp, and then we got we to gotta close the shows. are going to be long. Um, two hikers located off trail at Frankenstein Cliff. So October 9th, uh, well, we got some young ones here. So yeah. um, from, we got some young ladies from the Cape, Cape Cod area. So 24-year-olds, uh, two 24-year-olds from East Sandwich and West Dennis. Mm-hmm. So that's the Cape, I think. They were not prepared right. with lights. So uh, they had managed to get off trail on Frankenstein Cliff Trail and were not prepared. Hmm. Um, around 845... So they called around, oh, actually 7 o'clock, they were notified of two hikers that had managed to get off trail. Right, and around so 8.45, conservation officers, along with volunteers from Lakes Region Search and Rescue, hiked up to the location where the two hikers were believed to be. They were found around 9.50 and given lights and escorted back to the trailhead. And hmm. um, yeah, bring your headlamps, people. Yeah, it's funny. Mrs. Stump always talks about this as being one of her favorite hikes. I've never done it. It's supposed to be amazing. I don't think I've been on... I've done like Ripley Falls and Arethusa Falls a bunch, but I don't think I've gone on the Frankenstein Cliffs. Hmm. Well, thankfully, they didn't get off trail near the cliffs. 
True, true. Because then they would they would be in for a a, a much worse worse day mm. than they already were. But yeah, for sure, know, it happens. People forget their lights, I guess. Yep. All right, Stomp, so that down. is going to do it for the show. What did we learn today? That was a good one. We learned about covered bridges. We learned about Bigfoot. I think the overriding theme was, you know, starting with hiking buddies, check the weather forecast, and um, get ready for the winter. It's coming. Yeah, for sure. All right, Stomp, until next time. All right, bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 